Brother, appreciate that very, very much. Uh, I would like to ask everybody, if you would, take your copy of God's Word with me this morning and turn to John chapter 2, John chapter 2, as we are going to be looking at uh, Jesus' first sign or miracle, turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And so this morning we're going to look at this miracle or this sign to ask ourselves, why in the world is it here? Uh, what does this story have to do with anything other than just showing Jesus can do some pretty cool stuff? Uh, why is this here for us so that we might learn and study it this morning? Well, as we've been going the last few weeks, we've been walking through the season of the church calendar, which is often called the Epiphany, which is the season that follows after Advent. Advent is where around Christmas time we prepare ourselves to celebrate the arrival of Jesus, uh, his incarnation, uh, taking on human form so that we might uh, be able to, to be rescued and redeemed through his sacrifice. But just after that, we see the, the time when Jesus manifests himself, that through his public ministry, he reveals who he is as the Son of God, and he reveals what he came to do, and that's the season we're in now. And so we're looking at different texts in the Bible that show us how Christ is revealing himself to us and, and what we're to do with it, how it leads us to worship him. And this morning, the story we have in John chapter 2 of the wedding in Cana and Jesus turning water into wine is actually a picture that shows us uh, the magnificence and deity of Jesus and what he came to accomplish through his life, death, and resurrection. And so this morning we're going we're gonna to open this up and we're going to look at it. It might happen in a little different way because we're going to kind of go through the story and then backtrack and go through why it matters, why it's important for us today. So, John chapter 2, I want to point your attention there, and we're going to read the first 11 verses uh, that show us this first sign of Jesus in Galilee. I'm going to ask you if you're physically able to stand with me as we read God's word out of honor for his word, and then I'll let you sit down for just a few moments. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, going to verse 11, and here's what John writes to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Heavenly Father, we ask you to help us this morning to see the beauty of Jesus in these verses. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to glorify you as we study. Lord, would you teach us 
by your Holy Spirit's power? Would you show us your immense glory? And would you point us to our desperate need for you? Father, I ask you to teach us through these verses just how good and awesome you are. And Father, just how wonderful you are in bringing blessing into our lives. God, we desperately need you this morning and we sing your praise. Oh Lord, feed your sheep today by your word so that we might glorify you and honor you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated for just a moment. So there's a few things I want to point out to you. First, as we scan through the story, let's try to put ourselves in this uh, position and in this picture. We're told that on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding and his disciples. So we're told that the the background or the context to this story is that there is a wedding that the mother of Jesus, Jesus, and his disciples have all been invited to be a part of. Now, when I ask you, when you think of weddings, what is normally the mood of a wedding? When, what's that? Festive. Usually it's festive. Usually it's a time of celebration. Usually it's a time of joy. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they can be a mess. But normally they're a time of celebration. Normally they're a time of blessing. Normally a time of celebration and joy and gladness. Yeah, hopefully tears of joy. That's right, if there's any crying. But What we find is that here they have come, Jesus, his mom, his disciples, they've come to this celebration of a wedding in Cana in Galilee, but a problem arises. At the wedding, we're told that the wine ran out, verse 3. So all of a sudden, there's an issue that must be dealt with. Because just so you know, it was up to the host's Right? And especially the bridegroom was responsible for making sure that there was enough provided to all the people who would attend. And remember, these celebrations often got lengthy. They would spend upwards of a week celebrating together these great moments. And so there was supposed to be enough provided to the people to be able to have joy and gladness and to celebrate together. But then the wine runs out. All of a sudden, the wine runs out and there's a dilemma. Now, what happens at a joyous occasion of celebration in this day when the wine runs out? Well, okay, okay. All right, so I've now learned how you guys handle those situations. No wine, I'm out of here. Maybe instead of bailing so quick. Y'all in the room are awesome. Be like, I'd have gotten out of there five minutes ago. There's no way I'm sticking around for that. No, but it's, if, if the wine ran out, there was a picture there that's different than what we have today. Because you have a moment of celebration, a time of rejoicing, a time of gladness. And when the wine would run out at a celebration like this, how does that reflect upon those who are the hosts? How does that reflect upon those who are to provide for the people who are attending? It embarrasses them. It's actually a mark of, it'd be shameful. It would show that you didn't really care about them. You didn't even supply enough for everybody to be able to have fun and to to rejoice together. It would look badly upon the bridegroom. It would look badly upon the host 
that they hadn't provided and taken care of the people who were attending. And so we see it's a problem. Jesus' mom points it out to him. And then Jesus responds in this odd way that we read it in our language and go, ugh. But in verse 4, Jesus said to his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And for all of you looking at Jesus going, how dare he call his mom woman? Just know it's not reflect. The way we read that isn't what he means. It's not reflected. The, the idea behind the original word is the idea of, of lady. And, and what we do know is Jesus is not being disrespectful, right? Jesus is perfect. He's sinless. There's no way he's going to disrespect his mother in any way whatsoever. So this is not a term of disrespect, but what most theologians believe is happening is Jesus uses this word woman or lady in such a way as to say that the relationship between him and his mom is going to look different going forward. Up till this point, right, we're told this is the first sign Jesus did, the first miracle he did. Up until this moment, right, up in this, most of his life, what has he been? He's been Mary's son, Joseph's son. But what is he now? Well, those things are still true, but guess what? He's in this moment, I believe, he's saying that the relationship between him and his mom has to be subverted to his primary relationship to her, which is Savior, Messiah, King. So in this moment, he's not disrespecting her, but what he's saying is, because this is the beginning of public ministry, because this is the first sign, what he's showing her is, I am primarily the Messiah, the King. I'm still your son, but I've come for a mission. I've come to do my Father's will. And because of that, he says it in the way that, and then what does he point to? He says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, the question is, what does he mean by the hour? And, and the term hour can mean a lot of different things. The term hour can be used to refer to just the time of day. Sometimes it's used to talk about the persecution that his uh, followers are going to go through. Sometimes it talks about his second coming. Sometimes it talks about the cross. So which one is he referring to here? What does he mean that his time has not yet come? Well, I believe what we're going to find is that this is pointing to the fact that he is getting them ready for the fact that he's going to die on the cross. That the hour not yet to come is the hour that, that has, he's not at the point where he's going to climb up on the cross and die yet. So what does this have to do with wine and a wedding and water and all this stuff? Well, let's, let's walk through the rest of this. His mother, verse 5, said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Those are big jars. And they were meant for purification. That's what you would use to purify yourself for cleanliness, to make sure that you were ready to be a part of this solemn occasion in this great time of celebration. Jesus says, take these stone water jars, all six of them, and he says to the servants in verse 7, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So notice that this, this miracle takes place. They scoop out the water, become wine, take it to the master of the feast. He tries it. He says, wait, this is better than the stuff we've been doing all along. 
But that ain't how we do things. You know, it's customary that you give people the good stuff first. Then you give them the bad stuff, the, the poor stuff later. Now, why would that be? Well, because after you've had some, you don't much care about how great it is anymore. You just want more of it. Right? So normally you do the good stuff first, and after everybody's had enough, then you can bring out the poor stuff. But the master says, but this is better. This is better than what you started with. This is better than what we've had before. Who does that? We're told in verse 11, this is the first of his signs. Jesus did in Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. There's the story. A wedding, a time for celebration that ends up being marred by shame, running out of wine, right? Showing a, a real catastrophe in their midst. And then here is Jesus stepping up, and here is Jesus providing for them wine where there was none. And providing it by his own means, through his own provision, and doing it by his own power. And we're told that this is what Jesus did to manifest his glory and that they believed in him. So what has that got to do with you? Why do you care? Why should it matter? What is Jesus teaching you and me? Well, here's how I want to break it apart. First, we need to talk about what miracles or signs are meant to do, what their, what their purpose is. What are some of the, what, what's the purpose of a miracle or a sign? What's that? It can prepare you for something, yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so there's a, there's a validation. Miracles or signs can be a validation of the messenger. Didn't we see this in Exodus? We talked about this on Wednesday, this past week. God gave Moses two signs, right, initially. He gave Moses two signs. Throw your staff down, it becomes a snake. Grab it, it becomes a staff again. Uh, take your hand, put it inside your cloak. Pull it out, it's leprous. Put it back in, pull it back out, and now it's restored. And God meant those signs to be ways that, because Moses says, they're not going to believe me I'm talking for you. The Israelites aren't going to believe me that I'm speaking for you. Pharaoh certainly isn't going to believe me that I'm speaking for you. And so God gave Moses two of those signs to demonstrate and to validate that he was the messenger sent from God. So you can see that in Jesus' life too, right? That there's a validation in his signs and his miracles. There's a validation that he is who he says he is. But it goes even beyond that too. Because we see that often signs are physical realities and acts that are meant to represent and show a spiritual reality. Can I help you with this? Jesus feeds 5,000 people. That wasn't just so that they could have a buffet. And it wasn't just so that David could show, uh, it wasn't just so that uh, Jesus could show himself to be David Copperfield where he goes, poof, woo, and everybody goes, woo. But that Jesus fed 5,000 people. Why? To show them that the one who can physically feed is the one who spiritually feeds. The one who satisfies the hunger of the soul. The longing for satisfaction and peace and joy. 
So Jesus feeds 5,000 people to say, I'm the bread from heaven given for your spiritual hunger to satisfy you. You with me so far? Jesus heals a lady who had a blood issue, a blood disorder for years. Why? Was it just so he could go, look at that, awesome. No, because blood is what defiled you. You were considered unclean if you had a blood issue. So guess what? No one wanted to be around her. No one wanted to touch her. You know why? Because then they would be defiled. So Jesus heals her. And what is he demonstrating? What, I can just heal physical problems? No, he's demonstrating that the one who can heal of, and cleanse from defilement outwardly is the one who can cleanse defilement in the heart inwardly. You with me so far? Jesus heals a man born blind. Why? Just so he can go, poof, look, he can see. Isn't that awesome? No, Jesus heals the man born physically blind and causes him to be able to physically see to show that he can make spiritually blind people to see spiritual truth, to have their eyes opened. You with me? So signs were meant to be physical realities that pointed to ultimate spiritual realities. So with that in mind, why wine? What does wine have to do with anything? It must be significant if it's the first miracle or sign Jesus does. In fact, it's amazing because Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't talk about it. Only John does. And it's right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So why would this be such a big deal? You're, listen, you can't rob me of my... I got to get in there, man. You can't... You got, let me say, it, it is, but shouldn't, if we're going to ask ourselves why wine matters, wouldn't we want to ask ourselves, what does wine refer to in the Old Testament? Right? What does wine refer to in the Old Testament? Well, you look at places like Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 13, and we're told that wine is a picture or a mark of God's blessing on his people. Well, why would that be? Well, in order to have wine, what do you have to have first? Grapes, which means you've got to have a harvest of grapes first, which means God's got to provide a harvest so you can even have wine. So guess what wine is a picture of? Guess what wine represents? It represents the blessing and provision of God for a harvest. It was to show that he provided and cared for his people. If you had wine, you had the blessing of God. We see it also in Psalm 104 verse 15. Psalm 104 verse 15, wine is connected to joy of God's provision. Let me read this to you. Psalm 104, verse 15. Starting back at verse 14. 
talking about God. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine is connected to the joy of God's provision and care, the celebration that comes from knowing God has provided for his people. So think about that. Wine is connected to the blessing, provision, joy that God brings to his people. Now go back to the wedding in Cana. Wine runs out. Now what's it look like? No joy. No blessing. Dry, stale, get together. And what we find is that God is going to act in the midst of it. Because it's important in the midst of this shame that God would act. A couple of theologians I looked at talked about the fact that running out of wine at a wedding would bring such shame and, and, and disrespect among hosts and a lack of joy. So Jesus shows up. The wine runs out at this blessed event filled with gladness. And now there's shame. Now there's emptiness. And Christ is going to act. So what does he do? He provides. He provides in abundance. He doesn't just fill up the jars. He tells them, fill them up to the brim. I'm not just going to provide. I'm going to provide in abundance. So in this moment, in this time where there is supposed to be great sorrow and shame, Jesus shows up and he is going to provide blessing and provision and joy where it was absent. So what is he teaching you about himself? What is Jesus showing us? If physical realities are meant to point to spiritual truths, then what does this mean that Jesus shows up and he lavishly, by his own power, supplies miraculously provision and joy to people who had none? He's showing that he is the one who ultimately brings joy, satisfaction through himself. Now, what's he connecting it to? Well, remember earlier he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What's he connecting? This issue here and what he's doing here with his death on the cross. So Jesus in this story is the one who provides ultimate joy, salvation, right? He's the one who, who, who takes dryness and takes shame and turns it into rejoicing and the blessing of God. That's what he does. He shows up to those who need gladness and blessing of God and joy, who don't have it, and he provides it lavishly by his own provision. But it doesn't stop there. Because wine wasn't only used as a picture of the blessing of God, but wine is also in the prophets of the Old Testament promised by God 
as a mark of the kingdom of the king. That when the Messiah came, guess what his kingdom would be marked by? Wine overflowing. What's that point us to? The blessing of God, the joy we so desperately need in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our dryness, in the midst of our hopelessness. God promised that when the Messiah came, his kingdom would be marked by overflowing wine of blessing and joy. You see it in Jeremiah 31. You see it in Isaiah 25, Hosea chapter 2, Amos chapter 9. The prophets spoke and promised of God that there would come a day when the king would show up and his kingdom would not be marked by shame and it wouldn't be marked by disaster. It would be marked by blessing and joy and, and life. And so what we find is that wine not only speaks of the blessing of God, but it ultimately speaks of the kingdom of the Messiah. Now, what could Jesus possibly be teaching us at this wedding by turning water into wine? That's true. It's part. But remember what I just said. Wine accompanied the kingdom of the Messiah. Jesus shows up where there's only water. He turns it into wine to demonstrate what? Listen to what I just said. Listen to the words. The promise from the prophets was wine would accompany the kingdom of the Messiah. Jesus shows up, turns water into wine overflowing. What is he saying about himself? I'm the Messiah. All the promises that have been made, I bring them. Folks, this is why Jesus can't just be your bud. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a good guy. Jesus isn't just a moral teacher. When Jesus shows up and he turns water into wine, what he's saying is the kingdom of the Messiah is being ushered in. Remember what Jesus says, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, when he begins preaching, what does he say? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It means brought near. How is the kingdom of God brought near? Because God took on flesh and came. And here his first sign in public ministry is he turns water into wine to say, folks, you remember the Messiah? Remember the promises about his kingdom? I'm here. Woo! Y'all, this is more than just, man, we got a bummer, we're gonna run out of beverages. This is the king who's been waited on for centuries, shows up. And what does he do fresh out the gate? He provides joy and blessing in the midst of shame. You see what he's doing? Now, I know most people just read this text because they want to argue about alcohol and whether you can drink it or not. That's not what the main point of it is. The main point is that Jesus is the king you need. Jesus is the king you waited for. If you're going to have hope, if you're going to have spiritual blessing from God, if you're going to be near God, guess who you need? You need the king 
who showed up. And how glorious is God that he sends his king. Here he is. But right out of the gate, what are we shown? That the kingdom of the Messiah is ushered in by Jesus. And how is that kingdom ultimately going to be brought in? We already talked about it. My hour has not yet come. The kingdom of the Messiah is going to ultimately be ushered in by his death and resurrection. By his death on the cross. Folks, think about it. Before Jesus was arrested and tried and killed, he was with his disciples in the upper room. And he celebrates a Passover meal with them. And he institutes the Lord's Supper and while they're sitting at the table, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that Jesus took the cup, which was wine, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What is wine representing? The blood he was going to pour out so that we could be forgiven. Guess what he's doing at the wedding in Cana? Right from the very beginning, the first sign he does, what's he pointing him to? One day, I'm going to spill out my blood, overflowing for you, so that you might have blessing and joy from God. See, Jesus' ministry is all about getting to the cross. That's what he's come for. And from the very beginning at the wedding in Cana, he's showing him there. This is the length I'll go to. To provide, And just so you know, it has to be by Jesus' provision. We don't get to try and turn water into wine ourselves. We don't go back and try to recreate it. We trust in the one who is able to do all things and is able to rescue us from the depths of our sin. This is a call to recognize Jesus for who he is. Remember, we're celebrating the time when Jesus manifests himself and, and shows himself to be the son of God. What better way than right here? than to take all those pictures of God and his blessing and his desire in covenant relationship with his people to satisfy them and to bring life in the midst of death, what better way to show it than for Jesus to show up on the scene and begin to provide abundantly the picture of joy and satisfaction. But he had to die. Because we know wine is often used in the Old Testament as well as a picture of God's judgment poured out. The judgment for our sin. And we're told that Jesus on the cross would have his cup filled up with the sin and rebellion of humanity. And Jesus on the cross would take that full cup of sin and wickedness. The punishment deserved. And on the cross, Jesus would drink it all. He would drink it till there was none left so that we might know the blessing of God and to know the goodness of our Savior. This picture at the wedding in Cana is meant to point us to the beauty of Christ, what he would provide for us as only he can. That Jesus, who can take water and transform it into wine, demonstrating the blessing of God, can also take your and my ragged lives filled with sin and evil and wickedness and can transform us into new creations. 
The same Jesus who can transform water into wine can transform our hearts from stone to flesh that can love him and honor him. And oh, how we need it. I need it. I need the transformation that only God can give. I need the transformation that only Christ can secure. I need someone to transform me from an enemy of God to a child of God. And only he can do it. This morning, what you need is the transforming work of Jesus applied to you. What you need is the death of Christ applied to you. And the only way we have that is to go before him and to plead that his blood would cover us. That we would say to him that our sin is ugly and we hate it. And we love him supremely. That we would do that and trust in his finished work for us. But it's not just for people who don't know Jesus. We need to understand that as Christians. There are still parts of our lives that we need God to transform. There are still parts of our lives that don't look exactly as they should, that are still marked by sin, and we need Jesus to transform that as well. And he will. He promises he will. So I ask you, what areas of your life need spiritual transformation? What areas of your life is sin still a factor that needs to be rooted out? Do you pray to Christ? Do you ask him to remove it? Do you, do you seek to follow after him in devotion, trusting that he alone can cleanse you? It's okay to admit that we as Christians are not finished products. We need the transforming work of Christ to continue in our lives. So what is it? What area of life do you need the transforming work of Jesus to affect? Or maybe number two, maybe you're in a period of spiritual dryness. Maybe you're at a spot where spiritually you've been dry for a bit. And maybe what you need to do and what I need to do is turn and pursue Christ for joy and satisfaction, to do it through the disciplines God has given us, through Bible study and, and prayer and meditating on his word and journaling and, and, and fasting, all these things that are meant to stir up our hunger for Jesus. Maybe we need to pursue those. It's okay to admit all of us go through periods of spiritual dryness. All of us go through periods where the wine has run out and we need Christ to show up and provide as only he can, and oh, how he loves to provide joy and satisfaction for his people. This morning, you and I need to look upon Jesus and not just see a good prophet, not just see a historical figure who turned the world upside down, but we would look upon Jesus and see the Son of God, the Messiah, the King has arrived. And oh, how we need him this morning. No matter what the spiritual dryness, no matter what the area of sin, no matter what the struggle you're facing, Christ can and does provide satisfaction to his people. But we must pursue him. In a world calling out for us to chase after other things, we must pursue Jesus. This morning, I want you to behold the Son of God who provides great blessing and joy and satisfaction to people who are in desperate need, people marked by shame, 
This is the one whom Jesus has come to provide for. You and I are these folks. We need Christ this morning. I'm going to ask you to respond in some way today, whether it is to petition and plead with Jesus that, that he might bring spiritual transformation to some area of your life, or, or whether it's a, there's a, a, a spot of spiritual dryness that you need to pursue Christ in, that you need to, to see that he is the one who will ultimately satisfy. Maybe you need to trust in Jesus and, and see him as he is, as the, the king of all creation. This morning, we need to respond to him. We're going to celebrate Lord's Supper together. Before we do, we need to make sure that our hearts are right, that we're pursuing Christ with everything that we have, that we're confessing sin, that we're seeking him above all else. This morning, before we do that, I want to spend time giving us an opportunity to repent and to turn to Christ and to see his beauty this morning. I want you to respond because once we hear the word of God, we must respond in some way. We can't walk away unchanged. And so before we celebrate Lord's Supper together, Let's spend time asking God to cleanse us, to root out sin, to give us a love for one another that's far greater than anything else, that this morning we might be able to partake of the Lord's Supper together and proclaim that Jesus is our King. This morning, we need to respond. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask you this morning in this place to help us to turn to you, God, to trust you, and to see that Jesus is the King. Father, that we might completely rely upon you and give you glory today. Father, we need you desperately, though, because our lives are often marked by spiritual dryness. And, and God, we're in desperate need of the transforming work of your son. And so, Father, I pray for people who have never trusted in you, from people who have, who, have, who have never turned to you and sought forgiveness for their sin. God, would you show them today that you welcome them this morning? God, they might come to you with their sin and lay it before you and know that they can be forgiven if they cry out to Christ and that he loves to forgive. And Father, I pray this morning for us as Christians that you would help us to see that we still need to lay our eyes on Jesus. We still need to pursue the king of all creation. We still need to pursue the one who came so that we might have all spiritual blessing. Father, I pray that you would help us to turn our eyes to Jesus. And Father, if there's an area of our lives that we need to turn over to you, an area that we need your transforming work, or, or Father, an area where we need to pursue you, God, would you show that to us clearly? Father, would we walk away from this place today having encountered you and found hope and blessing that we long for? Heavenly Father, would you please stir up the hearts of your people, draw them to yourself, help us to commit our lives to you in full devotion. And Father, would you please root out sin, cause us to hate it and to love you. We ask you to do this, God, so that we can join together united as Christians and proclaim that Jesus is our King. Father, would you do this so that you might receive more glory. Father, heal relationships, heal brokenness. Do all of it for your namesake. I ask you to do this so that we might worship and praise you more. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.